The Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast is sponsored by Prairie Care. You know, going through the process of getting help with your mental health can be very overwhelming. I definitely know that from firsthand experience. Prairie Care can help guide you through it and get you in touch with the help that you need. They've been offering mental health services to all ages in the Twin Cities of Minnesota since 2005. Whether you're looking for clinical services, a specialty outpatient program, or a more intensive level of care like inpatient treatment, Prairie Care has you and your family covered. Visit prairie-care.com to learn more. That's prairie-care.com. Hello there, my friends, and welcome into another episode of the Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast. My name is Brian Pyatt, and welcome in. Great to have you here, as always, holding space for however you are showing up right here, right now in this moment. And really looking forward to spending this time together today. Uh, Before we begin this episode and get to our interview, um, really quickly just wanted to to mention a little update in my world. Um, I am currently working at a, a mental health therapy clinic in... The Twin Cities of Minnesota um, in Bloomington called State of Mind Therapy. Um, this is where I did my my practicum experience uh, at the tail end of, of grad school to become a mental health therapist, and I have made the decision that I am staying on board, which I am so, so excited about um, and super grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that. And the reason I'm mentioning this is just to give you a heads up that um, I am currently taking new clients. And so um, if you or someone you know is is looking for a, a therapist um, specifically focused on anxiety and OCD, um, just wanted to to let you know that um, there's an opportunity to to set up a um, free 15 minute phone consultation with me um, if I can be of any help. So um, I'm going to put a link to to how you can do that in the show notes of this episode. But um, basically, that's just kind of the first step to working with me um, if that is something that you are interested in. Um, you set that up gives us an opportunity for us to connect more, see if we'd be a good fit and kind of figure out things moving forward. Um, one thing to mention with that is, is I can only work with clients who are living in the state of Minnesota. So um, one little little caveat there, but um, would, would be honored and love the opportunity to connect with you if you are interested in working together. So with that, um, let's go ahead and, and transition into our interview today. And I am so, so excited to, to share this interview with all of you. Um, had somebody on the, the podcast today who I, I say it several times uh, throughout this interview that um, I have really, really admired their work from afar. It has really, really resonated for me. Um, and the fact that they were open to joining me for this conversation is something that I am so, so grateful for. Um, we have Lauren Rosen 
on the podcast today. And Lauren is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California, and she is the founder of the Center for the Obsessive Mind, and she is the co-host of the Purely OCD podcast. And I had Lauren on today, this week, to, to talk about her own personal story with OCD. Um, we talk about what is is often referred to as pure OCD, which we'll get into kind of what that is. Um, and we talk about mental compulsions that are, are common for, for some people living with OCD. Um, and we also dive into acceptance and commitment therapy as an approach to maneuvering symptoms of OCD. We talk about mindfulness and the role that that plays in recovery uh, with OCD and, and so much more. Um, I, we, we could have probably talked honestly for about three hours, <laughs> um, but uh, had to obviously cut it a little bit short for the purposes of the podcast. But um, I, I hope that there is something in this episode, my friends, that, that serves you. And I encourage you to, as always, just go ahead and leave the rest. Um, feeling really, really kind of drawn towards doing much more content that is specific to OCD on on my platforms. Um, and so just kind of want to want to name that and, and and also name that whether or not you live with OCD, um, I think there's there, there's things in this conversation um, that that I think, are helpful, regardless of, of whether OCD is something that you maneuver yourself or not. So let's go ahead and, and dive in, my friends. Uh, I'm going to put a sh- put uh, links in the show notes of where you can learn more about Lauren. Um, follow her on Instagram. She has a great page on there. You can check out her website and, uh, and much more. So as always, sending love to each and every one of you out there. Uh, be gentle with you one moment at a time. And here we go. Lauren, thank you so much for for joining me here on the podcast. I am I am so looking forward to to having this conversation with you. I'm so thrilled to be here, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, I was, I was telling you before I was telling you before we um we started recording. Um, I've I've admired your work from afar, and I've just like resonated very much with what you're putting out into the world, and we've talked about on podcasts, and um so so just thank you for for doing the work that you do. It's it's, well, it's very important. That is very dear of you. I feel very fortunate to be in a position to talk about these things and, you know, yeah. especially in light of what we were talking about before we started recording with regard to, you know, having lived experience with this and, and coming out yeah. on your side and, and like I said, being in a position to talk about these things and to share recovery and to support people in their own recovery is just, it's such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is, um, such an interesting journey, isn't it? Like going from that space of maneuvering something, struggling with something, and then being able to like transform that into um, hopefully making an impact and in, in supporting other people. 
Absolutely. Uh, actually, uh, not to draw too much on our conversation before, but we were yeah. talking a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy, and we yep. can talk more about that or not. But I, I think that w- one of the key tenets there is to really focus on value-based living and being the kind of human that you want to be. And I know that when I made the career shift to, to come into this field, so much of it was, I want to be a supportive kind, empathic. And of course you can do that in any field potentially, Mm -hmm. but then also having the ability to really like directly support people was just a, another bonus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and we'll get into, I would love to talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, I think that's something that you and I could probably nerd out on for, for a very long time, (laughs) probably uh, if we wanted to, um, but I, I would love to have have you, if you're if you're comfortable, sharing a bit about your own personal story. I know yeah. you're personally impacted by by obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, where did that start? You know, like where, where does that? I mean, it's it's like the hardest thing I know to like go back and really tell that story. But what is yeah. what has that journey looked like for you over the years? Yeah, it's a great question. So I. The, the first time in my life when I can pinpoint navigating or having to face what I now see as, as mm-hmm. part of my OCD uh, was when I was about seven. And it was actually, it came up as anxiety related to death and very existential in nature. We had no idea what it was at the time. My therapist took me to a bunch of my parents took me to see a bunch of different therapists and just like, nobody knew. Nobody was like, they were like, mm, no, I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't diagnosed no. as OCD, uh, unfortunately. And it wouldn't be for, for 17 years. Mm-hmm. Um, which of course that 14 to 17 year statistic always strikes me because I fell on the, the end of yeah. that. So yeah, for, for people who have never heard that just really quick, I want to oh, yes. referring to the <laughs> fact that, that like, I don't even know where the statistic comes from, but I've heard it often that somewhere between 14 to 17 years often between onset of symptoms, onset of symptoms to actually getting properly diagnosed with OCD and treated. Yep. And treated. Yeah. It takes a really long time for a lot of people. It does because there are so many misconceptions about what OCD looks like. So, you know, to, yep. to dive a little further, when I say existential OCD or existential obsessions, my, my fear was, well, my fears were related to, um, dying on like on the simpler side of things. And then it got really complex as I was worried about what would happen to me in the afterlife. And it wasn't so much, I was afraid I was going to go to hell or something like that. Although that played a role. (laughs) It it certainly was a pit stop on the, on the fear, uh, super show as it were, but, um, (laughs) it's a great way to put that. The fear super show, what a show, what (laughs) What a show to take in, right? What a show. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, ultimately it, it got to the place where I was like, Oh, but, Oh, what if I, what if I go to heaven and I don't like it? What if I don't, mm. what if I don't like eternity? Eternity is a really long time. What if I want an off switch? What if, like, what if mm. I'm not, what, what if my parents die? Like it just, it exploded as anxiety and OCD have a tendency to do. And so that was really my first experience with that. I would say that I've always been pretty sensitive, uh, always a thinker. <laughs> you know? And so these things sort of probably predisposed me toward 
uh, having that kind of an experience. But, um, but that was the first time I really recall, uh, in my life experiencing something that we would, I would now look back on and call OCD. Um, and my mother and, and I often talk about the fact that life would have been very different had she known, had we had the the same skills and awareness that, that really exists more broadly today. Obviously there's still a need for, for more awareness, but yeah, I spent years asking for reassurance and she, like any loving parent would, was like, oh, well, I'll just give her reassurance because what, what else are you supposed to do? So um, it, it's morphed over the years for me and I believe that I'm always going to have this sort of natural propensity toward anxiety. Um, but I probably haven't met diagnostic criteria for OCD in a long time for anyone who's listening, just not like, it's not causing me distress. Like the, the presence of thoughts and feelings that do come up, uh, don't cause me distress and I'm not engaging in a bunch of compulsive behaviors. So it's not interfering with my life, but I, I think no, understanding that for me, what recovery has, and, and I presume will continue to look like is that I have a brain that works in a certain way. I tend toward anxiety. It comes up in all sorts of different facets. Like what are people thinking about me? Or, you know, it, historically I've, I've struggled with an eating disorder as well. So it's, you know, what do people think of my body? What, you know, what if it's not good enough? So it's like all of these different ways in which concerns arise. Um, yeah. So that's yep. kind of. Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, and, and, and I think and I think one of the the really beautiful things that I, I take away from that um, is the fact that you said thoughts still come up, th- stuff still arises. It just yep. sounds like you've shifted your relationship with that, where you're not you're not getting pulled in by it as much as as you did in the past. Well said, exactly. Like yeah. it doesn't get to run the show anymore. It's like you put, it's not getting rid of anxiety. It's more about putting anxiety in its place so that it doesn't get to drive the car, so to speak. Yes. Yes. And I think that is so foundational, right? Because I think a lot of people step into this work and start therapy thinking, you know, the the barometer of success is the eradication of all my symptoms and, and, you know, never experiencing intrusive thoughts again. And, having certainty over everything. And, you know, I think it really couldn't be far further from the truth, right? It's more of a a process, I guess, at least how I look at it is, you know, can we get to a place where thoughts can still arise, emotions are still going to arise? That's not the problem, right? It's more, can we allow them to arise and learn how to kind of move on from them maybe a little bit quicker? Than, yeah. than we did in the past. Yeah. And can we be in the presence of them and potentially like, you know, with, with anxiety and OCD, oftentimes that there's this element of uncertainty, right? So can I be with the uncertainty that, that yeah. has come up and that the anxiety related to that uncertainty and just move about my life as I, I would were this not here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I was re I'm, I'm actually reading a colleague's book right now. Uh, ben Eckstein, he just came out with a book called worrying is optional, mm. which I love the title. It's so good. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it speaks to sort of disengaging from the behavior of worry. And I know I started this 
sentence with a, uh, we were headed in a direction, but I'm not actually sure where That's that a, direction know. was now. Um, there was something in his book that related to the topic <laughs> that we were discussing, but eh, it's, we it's now gone. know that the book was written. That's all it that was. we needed to know. And it's a good book. I highly recommend it if you tend toward worrying or um, yeah. any, any of the rumination, that kind of thing. Cause it, the book is really, it's transdiagnostic. So it's for people with OCD. It's for people with anxiety disorders. Um, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. and now you're going to worry about the fact that you couldn't remember it was what was in the worrying book that you wanted to talk about. Right? Actually, I'm going to make a concerted choice not to ruminate <laughs> about go. that or Progress. what what people might be thinking about me on the podcast. Like, oh, that Lauren Rosen twit. Yeah, has no but, idea. Well, but is you know what, though, isn't that that is kind of the work and action there, isn't it? Like kind of yes. giving ourselves some space to like be human at the end of the day yeah. and, and make mistakes and um, not have to have everything all figured out all the time. Yeah. Cause that's an unrealistic way to live. It is a very unrealistic way to live. Yeah. What, um, what helps you maintain recovery today? Like, are, are there things that you, I know you talked about just, you know, some of the approach to kind of how your relationship with thoughts and things like that when they arise. Um, but oh, are, are there I, other? Actually, I remember what I was going to say. Huh. Love it. Is Love uh, it. the, the, uh, and I guess toward this end, but the research shows that actually the difference be- between people with anxiety disorders and without isn't in the presence or absence of certain thoughts. It's not in the presence or absence of certain feelings. It is really down to how they relate to them. Yes. And so uh, that's, it was, reminded, I, I was reminded of that because I think that that's, yeah, the practices that I continue to prioritize in my life really are down to supporting that. I'm so sorry for interrupting yeah. you. I just no, I'm like, wow, no, I'm that's not great. It's going to go away. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, well, it's kind of like, um, it's like living with a sticky brain. I think that analogy has always really resonated for me. You know, it's, yes, we all, every single one of us on the planet, um, experiences, thoughts all throughout the day. Some of them are thoughts that we'd probably be a little bit embarrassed to admit that we're having. Um, (laughs) The the difference between somebody who struggles with OCD versus somebody who doesn't, right? Like the person that doesn't have OCD might kind of have a moment of like, whoa, that was an interesting thought. Not sure why I thought that. It might feel awkward for a couple seconds, but they're able to kind of move through it and move on with their day. Yep. Whereas, right, the person living with OCD... um, it, it sticks and it yes. cycles and it, it becomes an endless game of why did I have that thought? What does that thought say about me? I need to do something to figure out and kind of tie a bow on this thought and figure it out before I can move on. Yes. And, and that pulls us out of our life very quickly. So well said. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess to sort of dovetail into what you were the question you were asking yeah. when I remembered. Um, <laughs> I one of the things that I find has been most beneficial in my own recovery, uh, and I have a tendency to be more of a like a pure O type yep. sufferer. So I have more uh mental compulsions or invisible compulsions than than most people. So I find that mindfulness and meditation play a big role in my relapse prevention mm. because so uh, the the reason behind that is so i think meditation is really off-putting to a lot of people and it seems very uh sort of 
out of touch, right? Like it's like this, the untouchable thing that's like, and then you're going to yeah. be levitating and you know, you're going to be some sort of Zen master, which I'm still not. Uh, but I, <laughs> spoiler. you're not levitate. You are currently not levitating. I'm not, I'm so disappointed. From what I can tell what I can tell right now. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, no, not yet, but I'll keep you posted. I'll, okay, I'll shoot you an email know. if it changes. Yeah, you can let, let your audience know. But um, <laughs> but I think that the idea with mindfulness meditation is that you're learning to be the objective observer of your internal experiences and sometimes yeah. your external experiences, the external experiences as well. But really with meditation, per se, yeah. it's about it's like practicing mindfulness or that non-judgmental awareness in a vacuum. And so if your eyes are shut and you're just focused on your breathing, it's going to be pretty clear when your mind wanders off and you're planning the rest of your day or you're trying to resolve uncertainty about something and having that awareness as well as ultimately the ability to disengage, which again is something that, that happens when we're, when we're doing like a focused attention meditation, like I'm placing my attention on my breath. When my mind wanders, I'm going to go, Oh, look, I'm thinking, cool. Uh, but right now I'm actually focused on the breath. And so I'm going to bring my attention back to the felt experience of breathing. That practice from my vantage point is almost identical to noticing that you're trying to resolve uncertainty about something, making a choice to come back into the present moment where your life is actually happening. Right. So it's that same skill set that is so important for people with OCD, again, particularly people who have primarily mental, uh, mental compulsions. Mental compulsions. Yeah. 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 So yes, couple, couple things, kind of places to go with this. Um, You mentioned the term pure OCD. Um, How do you describe to people what pure OCD is? This is something that I know some people have probably heard of other people, maybe not. Yeah. And I, I, the first thing I, I tend to say uh, is that it's actually a, it's a misnomer. It's, it's a great calling card for, Hey, there's a form of OCD that most people wouldn't necessarily think of as OCD and it doesn't involve all of the checking or hand washing or what have you that mm-hmm. might be stereotypically associated with OCD. Um, so it's a misnomer because I have yet to meet the person with OCD who does not perform compulsions. So if we are calling compulsions the attempts, the behaviors done in the interest of getting rid of anxiety, uncertainty, like that, getting that resolution. Yes, sometimes that's behavioral in a way that you can see, like it's a, it's a phys- physical behavior. So you could watch somebody checking the, the lock on a door a bunch of times. But for some people, and this is the, the case with Pure O, you can't see those behaviors because they're literally all in your mind, right? It's mental. And so it's really unfortunate, I think, that we don't talk about more as a society the fact that there are such things as mental behaviors <laughs> because you hear people saying like, oh, we'll just think positive, right? And then people are like, well, I'm having all of these negative thoughts. I can't do that. And it's like understanding the difference between you don't get to choose what shows up in your mind. You get to choose how you handle it and how you talk to yourself. Um, that, that difference is so important. Um, 
so in any case, if we're going back to this definition of pure O or this idea of pure O, really what that involves is having a thought. Like if you take, for example, my childhood fear, like what if I, what if I don't like eternity? That's an awfully long time, right? My response to that now at the time, I would also seek a lot of reassurance. So I would ask my, my mother, my father, like, am I going to be okay? What's going to happen? Right. Just trying to feel better because I didn't like the uncertainty that was presented when those thoughts came in. That being said, if I was to do more of like the pure O response, it might look like ruminating. So for instance, going over and over, uh, this idea in my head, like, well, could I, could I be okay with eternity? Maybe it's not so bad, right? Like just churning and chewing on this idea. Um, it might look like checking my feelings. So like, okay, I'm going to imagine myself living in eternity and I'm going to check how I feel to, to try to reassure myself. Right. So there are all of these different things that you can be doing to try to fix, um, the, the, unresolved uncertainty in your mind um, that nobody would ever know you were doing. And that's, that's really what differentiates pure O from, or pure OCD from the, the rest of, of OCD. Yeah. Yeah. Mental, mental compulsions that, that people don't see. Um, And I I mean, I, for me personally, and I know a lot of other people have this experience um, hearing that term and learning about pure OCD was complete game changer for me. Like yes. that's, that's, that's when I actually started to understand that I was living with OCD because yes. a lot of people, um, have no idea that they're living with OCD because they're not doing compulsions that are visible. They're not, they're not excessively washing their hands. They're not tapping the door handle four times. They're not doing the things that our society has told us, Oh, that's what OCD is. Yeah. Um, and so I know just having that terminology, um, is has been so so transformative for myself and, Absolutely. and I know a lot of a lot of people out there. I couldn't agree more and I I think it's so normalizing for people to and and yeah. really uh empowering because it's especially because I hear a lot of people say like, oh, well, I'm just obsessing. I'm not compulsing. Well, if that's the case, you know, you know, the the sort of treatment approach is really in accepting the obsessions and disengaging from the compulsions. Well, if if you can't identify the compulsions, then your hands are tied. It's like, oh, well, I'm just at the whim of this thing versus saying like, no, no, you are actively doing something that is feeding into this. It's re-triggering you. It's taking away from your life. And you, and there's something you can do about it. You don't have to keep thinking. That's it's a choice. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other the other piece with with pure O that um, is so heartbreaking is that a lot of people who struggle with more of that manifestation of OCD are living with intrusive thoughts that are extremely shame based, mm-hmm. like just steeped in yes. shame. And that's not to say that people who are doing engaging in more physical compulsions aren't living with the same amount of shame, but what what I seem to sense with pure OCD presentations is um, an immense amount of shame. A lot of intrusive thoughts along the lines of, um, you know, am I the type of person that's capable of murdering my family? Am I the type of person who, um, you know, is, just this terrible, awful human who I've offended God in some way, and I'm bound to a life of endless punishment. I mean, it's, it's really like 
intense stuff that people are living with in their brains and spending a lot of time trying to figure out these these questions um, yeah. that ultimately are unanswerable. Yes. Um, yeah. And and lo- and walking around with a deep seated feeling of there's something really wrong with me. Yes. And so I think that's yeah. again. You know, the, the power of, a, of, of getting a diagnosis can be just so transformative, even if you haven't done the work on it yet, just to have a diagnosis to be like, oh, my gosh, like this is what's going on. For yes. Me. Yeah. Um, it's is a huge deal. It's a really big deal. It is, especially what you're speaking to with some of the more taboo thoughts yeah. that come up with, with these more pure O subtypes yeah. is the element of identity. Yeah gets totally wrapped up in what kind of a person am I now that can happen. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm an irresponsible person if I don't go back and check the door lock again, or if I don't wash my hands and I end up getting sick, or maybe I'm a bad person because maybe I'll get sick and then I'll get somebody else sick or (laughs) right. Like it is absolutely possible, but uh, that that comes up and it does for many people. That being said, when somebody has a thought, like, what if I want to murder my family? Right. That that mm-hmm. really it, it turns into this whole back and forth for that person in trying to grapple with am I am I an awful human? Right. Like do I yeah. do I not feel empathy? Do I not and you know, I yeah, I, yeah that's I, I think yep. very, yep. very challenging to to navigate. And I think another reason, right, why a lot of people um it probably takes so long for people to get help is is it's it's hard to vocalize. Mm-hmm. those things to somebody because there's a fear of like oh my gosh if I tell somebody what's going on in my brain um they're gonna yep. lock me up you know and so, absolutely including mental health professionals yeah. right because yeah. and at the beginning of treatment you know being mandated reporters people are like oh well and I have to report any sort of child or elder or dependent adult abuse and oh by the way if you tell me that you're planning to harm someone I have to tell about yeah. that too, to protect. And, and yes, all of that's true. However, yeah. if somebody's not sure what their thoughts mean and they're yeah. really anxious about that, they might be concerned about bringing it up lest somebody, you know, yeah, put them on a psychiatric hold. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, when I have, I think I, it, it's one of the most courageous things for, for people who are maneuvering this stuff to walk into a, a therapy session and, and really be honest about what's going on with them yeah. internally. And it absolutely, I, it's never, that's never lost on me ever when I hear somebody in, in, in a session share something with me. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and I, and I think it's, it's also important to note, I think that as, as OCD therapists, I mean, I'm very new to this field, but, um, it's kind of like we, we've heard it all, <laughs> you know, yeah. like there really, there really isn't much that anybody could share with me. And in fact, I don't really don't think there is anything that really somebody could say to me in a session that would shock me too much. No. Um, cause of the things that OCD is, is able to latch onto and create really elaborate stories about, um, it, I mean, it's, it, it could be anything. It gets really creative. Yes, it, so. it does get really creative, but there's, I think because it tends to rest on taboo things, and that doesn't always, but oftentimes does the people tend to sort of conglomerate around these certain yeah, yeah. ideas. And, you know, yep. that's, I think, but I'm with yeah. you. I, I don't think that there's anything that anyone could say to me that I'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you, you had that thought. It's yeah. yeah. Brains yeah. are ridiculous. Well, and I think to the, um, 
it just made me think of, I think there's this thing that starts to happen too with OCD where it, um, latches on to even like different like social movements happening in, in like mm-hmm. mainstream society. So I yes. think, you know, given, um, the extremely, um, deep racial, um, issues that have come to the surface over the last several years in our country, um, I've heard people where like their OCD now latches onto that because, because society has now told us like, this is a really bad thing to be racist. And of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that is, which is, which is then prime breeding ground for somebody living with OCD, like to now have the experience of like, okay, I, I know that like, this is a really bad thing to be racist. So my brand, my OCD is going to latch onto that and try to convince me that I am. And people now starting to fear like, yes. oh my gosh, what if I blurt out racist slurs and you know so yes. I, I, i'm very fascinated again kind of going back to the the creativity of ocd um it it if society comes up with anything like society could literally say holding a i'm holding a pencil right now holding a pencil is the sign of being a very bad person right <laughs> my yeah. ocd would probably uh-huh. latch on to like you're really drawn to pencils aren't you? right <laughs> you know and, I would, and, and it would start obsessing about that well, yeah, and it's interesting in the age of social media too, because there's always things being spoken of that it tends the the fears tend to glom on in that arena as well. Yeah. You, I, I really appreciate the mental health space on social media, and I also find that a lot of accounts tend to be very one dimensional and state things like if you if you do this, then that's bad, <laughs> which is I I mean. When we're talking about something like racism, yeah, sure. But, you know, if it's like, you know, you uh, got defensive with your partner, it's like, oh, or you're a human. That also could, right? But I think that people get tend to get very all or none about things. And especially in the context of OCD, I think it's interesting what you brought up, though, about these sort of the movements and as you mentioned, like super important that they're being discussed. And also you're right. It's, and it's taken to extremes. It's so for instance, when uh, the me too movement Mm -hmm. happened as well, I was going to bring up that one too. Yeah. That there was a lot of moral scrupulosity around like, well, did I always explicitly ask for consent in sexual situations and maybe I didn't and maybe was that a weird uh, situation and did I hurt somebody and like all of these questions arose for people about I don't want to be that kind of a person and it's just more in in their face and I think that that also but there's some interesting rhetoric around how just even things happening in society have informed the sort of clusters of obsessions, right? HIV AIDS back in the the eighties. And um, so, you know, and, and how scary that was obviously scary that was for everyone. And, you know, when we talk about sexual orientation, OCD, um, a lot of the time initially it was, it was discussed as HOCD, right? Which we, we don't call it that anymore because it's not about being gay, straight, by whatever it's about feeling anxious about identifying in a way that's inauthentic but but at a certain point right like it was it was very much um I 
to some extent, right? Like it's like having an identity that that is still disenfranchised as somebody, you know, who's part of the LGBTQ community. However, at the time when that, that particular obsession started to flare up, maybe there was Mm -hmm. a little bit more of that going on. So I, yeah. Yeah. And I think for people too, who are maybe not as familiar with kind of the themes of OCD, like HOCD, very, very common um, symptom with OCD where somebody will become fixated on um, what if I'm gay or what if I'm like, like this, this real hyper fixation on trying to identify what their sexuality is and it might yes. be different than who they are. And I, and I think what's really super important to point out with that one is that um, it's not at all saying being gay is bad. I mean, I, I, I am gay myself. And so it's funny how like my OCD is actually latched on to what if I'm actually straight? Well, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's just, it's just this whole, like our brains on like hyper drive mode. Yes. Trying to, I I think it almost like boils down to like this fear of like inauthenticity. Yes. 100%. I think that that funnels into a lot of different themes with OCD. Yeah. It's like this fear of like, what if I'm not, 100% 100% being authentic. And if I'm not being authentic, I'm going to live this like horrible life and I'm doomed to misery. Yep. yep. So actually it's really interesting not to get too in the weeds. Cause I, I, I know that this is very specific, but uh, my colleague Kelly and I were talking about this, I think on our podcast the other day, actually um, that in some ways, and John Hirschfield said that you can boil everything, like all OCD subtypes down to moral scrupulosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we were talking about is that you could boil it down to moral scrupulosity or existential, mm. right? That one is like, I'm not going to live my best life, basically. Yeah. Like, I, And that's, again, it's uh, to your point, totally about authentically identifying. It's not about sexual orientation. It's about what if I'm lying to myself or to other people. And yes. so on the one hand, it's like, what if I live a fraudulent life and I wake up at the end of my life and I think, oh, I should have done things differently. Or on the other hand, um, people sometimes are like, well, what if I'm lying to my partner? Right. Like, what if I'm being disingenuous? What if I hurt them? What if we have children? What if one day I come out and I harm the children because I've been lying to myself this whole time and I can't just be honest. Right. So it's it's I think super important to talk about that because people are and and so many people who have sexual orientation, OCD, if they're let's say, you know, they're straight and they have obsessions related to being bi or gay, that they're very inclusive and very accepting. And they're horrified by the idea that they would be up, you know, like upset at the idea that they they could be gay. So it's it's important to recognize it's not about that. It's it's really about am I being truthful? I'm curious, you, you mentioned acceptance and commitment therapy at the yeah. beginning. And, yeah. and I really, I really want to hit on that just a little bit. Um, because I, I see it as such a, a beautiful lens of how to, to start working and, and healing and moving through and with OCD. Um, I know we don't obviously on a podcast have the ability to, to, you know, do Roll up our that's, not, that's not what this is at all. Of course, I mean that's not what we pretend to do. But yeah. how do you start to 
how do you kind of conceptualize like working with OCD through kind of like acceptance and commitment therapy and kind of what that is. Yeah. If I may, I'll try and keep this as much in a nutshell as I can, but uh, sort of contextualizing that if we look at exposure and response prevention, which is part of the B and CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy, it's the behavioral therapy Mm -hmm. that's considered the gold standard treatment for OCD, as you know, um, but obviously (laughs) for anyone who's listening, um, And the idea there is that you learn to face down the things that scare you and you don't respond by trying, by using compulsions, right? You don't try to manage and control your anxiety um, or uncertainty with any behaviors. And historically, we've thought about the, the focal point of doing exposure and response prevention therapy as habituation, which is the, the basis for anyone listening is just that you get used to the things that scare you over time. And if you don't do the behaviors, you learn that you're safe when you don't do the behaviors and then you don't feel anxious anymore, which ultimately it's true that that often happens, right? Like that's a side effect of being exposed to something over and over again. Like you're likely to feel less anxious about it or less anything, right? If you eat pizza 30 nights in a row, you're going to habituate to that too. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, I mean, I love pizza. I'm presuming everyone else loves pizza as much as I do. Um, so the the idea though, uh, as as time has gone on, the, the field has really transitioned more toward this viewpoint of, of centering what's called inhibitory learning. And so um, the inhibitory learning perspective is that we don't actually get rid of the anxiety. So you don't extinguish the anxiety. It's that you learn uh, different connections. So yeah, this thing uh, could be dangerous and thus causes me anxiety. It could also not be dangerous, right? So you start to have all of these experiences that inhibit the initial response, right? But again, there's this focus really on distress tolerance as the focal point and as being indicative of long-term recovery, as opposed to, I'm going to get rid of my anxiety by really, you know, facing these things over and over again. And ACT kind of takes that to the next level and says, okay, we're not, we're not even interested in trying to get rid of anything. We're not trying to, to, yeah, learn new associations so that it doesn't cause us as much anxiety. It's really like the fact that anxiety is there doesn't even need to be touched. It's just there. We're going to learn how to be accepting of it. We're going to make space for it. We're going to have a different relationship with our feelings. And um, as opposed to, you know, some element of cognitive work, right? Like walking through, oh, well, these thoughts don't make sense. And uh, which can very easily become compulsive. The, The focus really is on, oh, look, I'm having a thought oh, look, I'm having a feeling. How interesting this being this objective observer. It goes back to the meditation I was talking about and ACT is very heavily influenced by mindfulness. So that's that and this element of values. So it's about accepting the, essentially, it kind of reminds me of the serenity prayer in 12 step, right? It's Mm. accept the things you cannot change, change the things you can have the wisdom to know the difference and Mm. you're done, right? Like it's, Mm. I'm going to accept that I have all of these thoughts and feelings. I'm going to refocus my attention on being the kind of person that I want to be, be independent of outside circumstances. Uh, and that what's interesting 
we, I think those of us who have experienced OCD, we're, we're chasing this pleasant experience or feeling of happiness. Understandable. Probably most people are. But by trying to get rid of feelings or trying to get other feelings, we're, we're kind of constantly being batted back and forth between the two. When you focus on your values, when you focus on how do I show up as the kind of person that I want to be, you actually build a much more lasting sense of contentment because regardless of what happens on the outside, you're like, you know what? I showed up and I was kind. And yeah, it totally blew up. <laughs> it did not go well, but I I really, I did show up with the best of intentions and I can learn from this, right? That there's, and obviously having a growth mindset doesn't hurt either, but um, that's kind of act in a, something yeah. of a nutshell in a, a large yeah. nutshell nutshell yeah <laughs> yeah and it's it, no you did a great job with that and it yeah it's 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 a it really does just seem to boil down to like creating space for what is right whether that's thoughts emotions sensations in our bodies yeah and allowing it to be there not trying to push it away also not trying to overly engage with it right just kind of like letting it be yep um and then doing our best to come back to the moment and and align our actions with our values, like what's That's important it. to us. And I think what's so powerful about it too, and it's been so helpful for me is, um, it's it's. I think too often, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. Like too often, we sit around waiting for us to ourselves to feel ready to live mm. our lives. Yep. Right. Like it's this, like, I'm going to sit around and in the case of OCD, I'm going to get 100% certainty about this intrusive thought that I'm having and wait for that anxiety to die down. And then I'll be ready to go do all the things that I want to do with my life. Right. Um, and acts says, no, we're not doing that. We're going to, yeah. we're going to, <laughs> yeah, we're going to do, we're going to learn how to start doing those things that are important to you now with all of that stuff along for the ride. Yep. Absolutely. Um, well, and it's very yeah. reminiscent in some ways of things like positive psychology, which is like, you know, it's, it's about getting out, doing what matters to you. And that like, that's going to like, of course, it's going to give you a greater sense of meaning and purpose and, and well being overall. And if, if you listen to the feelings, right, you take somebody with depression, nothing to do with OCD, um, and, and you feel depressed and then you let that feeling dictate your behaviors. You stay inside all day. You, you know, hide under the covers, you don't do your work or your school or whatever. That's not really a recipe for feeling differently, right? By behaving like somebody who is depressed, you are perpetuating depression. And likewise, by behaving like your anxiety is important, important, you're going to perpetuate anxiety. Mm Um, yeah. 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 And it's, and I think with act two, right? Like the, the goal is not, the goal is not to get the anxiety to go away or to get the distress to go away. It's, it's to invite it along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And yet I think the more that we learn how to show up with that stuff along for the ride, one of the byproducts of that approach is that stuff maybe shows up a little bit less. Yes. Or at the very least, it is. That's absolutely right. It's a a side effect, not the goal. And as soon as it becomes the goal, then you're accepting in order to get rid of something which really isn't acceptance at all. And Mm. so I think that that's a really important Mm -hmm. point to make is that like basically using acceptance as a way to control or manage your feelings 
isn't acceptance. You're, we're mm. actually looking for you to have a different relationship with your thoughts and feelings. One that is not like accepting, like you get to be here for as long as you need to. And you're right. Yep. Ultimately, sometimes without the resistance, it like it stops showing up as much, or at the very least when it comes up, it doesn't yeah. bother you. So it's yeah. like, because you're accepting of it. So it's like, there's no, there's no resistance. So I, I wonder that often, is it a matter of not having the thoughts or feelings as much, or is it that it doesn't bother you when it comes up? So it doesn't it. register, right? <laughs> like you're I mean, just I like, I think that's ah. it. Right. Cause I still, I mean, I still, to this day, I, I have, I've had OCD come up in this conversation. I've had, a, I have mm. OCD comes up all day long for me still, Yeah, but it doesn't, and, and I still, I mean, I, I'm not perfect. None of us are like, I still yep. get pulled into it all the time and I have really tough days, but it, it just, it doesn't, um, I'm just maybe a little bit better at, at maneuvering it with those, with that uncomfortableness part of my experience. Yep. Yep. You know? That's it. I mean, ultimately that's why I, when I open my practice, the center for the obsessive mind, it was really about like, how do you navigate life with an obsessive mind instead of how do you get rid of obsessions or, yes, you know, yeah. because it's like, it's not all of the fighting actually misses the point and takes up so much more focus than it, yeah. than it deserves. And it ends up making your life very, very small. If you're just always trying to, to yep. get your thoughts and feelings on your terms. So totally. yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I love this conversation. Same. I know. I silly time. <laughs> I know. Silly time. We could just do a four hour conversation and yeah. just but, <laughs> maybe um, nobody would listen, but but we would enjoy ourselves. <laughs> we would have fun. Yeah. 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 We'd probably talk ourselves into knots after yeah. after all that. But that sounds right. Um thank you so much. Um is there anything that, that I didn't ask you about or anything that you wanna wanna share before we finish? You know, nothing comes to mind. I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to chat with you about all this stuff. And um, yeah. yeah, if if you're in the thick of it, I will say, I guess, um, when, you, when people hear you can't get rid of your thoughts and feelings and you're in the midst of it, sometimes they experience that as like, oh, this is a death sentence, right? Like mm. I'm, I'm just gonna be stuck the way I am forever. Mm. I know that I experienced that to some degree when I when I first began this journey. And I think understanding that having a different relationship with your thoughts and feelings until you're there, you don't know what that's like. And so you may always experience these things. It doesn't mean you're going to have the same experience of these things. So uh, being willing to sort of suspend your disbelief around things and and just go forward and see what happens um it's i know that for me it's been one of the great gifts of my life the uh, yeah. learning about all of this stuff and it's helped me far beyond the context of, of navigating OCD. So just, I, I don't want it to seem like there's no hope. There's lots and lots of hope. A lot of hope. Yes. Um, and so if, if anything of what we said today is like, ah, <laughs> like <laughs> I, I think of the, the movie, The Big Lebowski, like nothing's effed, dude. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. no, nothing's effed, man. Nothing's effed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that I've never seen that movie. Well, that's okay. I I have only so, seen it probably once or twice, and but my one of my best friends, Kelly, and another close friend uh, are obsessed with 
the movie. Yeah. And so I, I tend to quote it a lot. <laughs> so I, I think the moral of this conversation is that I need to go watch that movie. I think that is the moral. And, and when so. I hear that line, I'll be like, okay, that's what yeah. Lauren was talking about. I get <laughs> that's it. That's what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for having right. me on, Brian. Thanks, Lauren. Take care. Also, just a reminder that this podcast is not meant to replace work with a therapist. And so if you feel you need it, encourage you to reach out to a trained mental health professional. All right, we'll talk soon.